0: Hi, welcome to the Coaching Manual podcast. I am Pavel Williams, I'm the editor at the Coaching Manual and today I'm talking to Ian Barker. He's the director of coaching education at the National Soccer Coaches Association of America. He's also a displaced Brit who has experienced coaching both here in the UK and over in the US for close to 30 years. He also has lots of actionable advice for coaches working at grassroots level uh, here in the uk and in the us and also for guys who maybe want to progress their career and work up to director of coaching positions or explore what uh, opportunities that lie for them in the us the conversation also touches on how we communicate with parents the role of a federation in coaching education and player development and how you can kind of measure your success so it's a really interesting conversation ian's always great fun to talk to and he has a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience so well worth a listen i hope you enjoy it podcast today is sponsored by TCM Pro, which is the Coaching Manual Pro. It's our premium level service, which enables you to have a look at every single video on the site, including all the videos and sessions from Southampton FC's Academy. It also includes everything that comes out in the next few months. So whether you are currently on a free membership or whether you haven't signed up and uh, had a look around the site currently, go to the coachingmanual.com forward slash join. Have a look at the options there. And if you do upgrade to Pro, you'll get unlimited access to everything on the site with a full refund. So if you don't like it and you don't feel like you get any value out of it, you would give your money back, no hassle. But the vast majority of people, almost everyone, they love it. So give it a go. Okay, we can dive into the conversation. Thanks as ever for listening. Uh, Do let us know what you think on Twitter, at Coaching Manual, or Facebook. You can find us facebook.com forward slash The Coaching Manual. Maybe the best way to start is just um, quickly remind listeners who maybe aren't familiar with with yourself, um, sort of your own career path, like what's your current role and just talk really briefly about how you got there.
1: So my name is Ian Barker and I'm currently the Director of Coaching Education for the National Soccer Coaches Association of America. Uh, We're based in Kansas City and that's an organization which boasts being the largest soccer coach or football coach membership organization in the world. And my responsibility with this organization is coach education, and the organization also does membership benefit pieces and events conventions, symposiums. Um, I'm a product of Great Britain, but I've lived more than half my life now in the United States. I got my F.A. prelim when I was still at the University of Warwick, and one of my mentors at that time was the, uh, I think it's fair to say, legendary David Sexton. Um, but other than coaching a little bit with the university side, all of my day-to-day coaching um, on a full-time basis has been conducted in the United States of America. And I um, chose to take the United States Soccer Federation Coaching Awards and have worked through all of their awards. And then also took the parallel, somewhat parallel course of the NSCAA Awards. And I have all of their awards also. Um, America is a little bit unique in as much as um, we have two quite large coach education bodies, the Federation, uh, which would be akin to the English FA, but also our coaching membership organization has the coach education piece. And um, we are essentially an affiliate member of U.S. soccer, but our coach education programs are quite strong. Um, I coach 21 years of uh, U.S. college NCAA Division 1 and Division 3. Some of your listeners may be familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also the state director of uh, Minnesota ch- in charge of player development and coach ed. And the, the state of Minnesota had 80,000 registered youth players. Um, and amongst some other uh, typical side gigs, which coaches in this country and other countries tend to get, I am now currently the director
0: of coaching for the NSCAA. And I have been for three years. <laughs> Excellent. Um... I think you touched on the number of players there and um, one of the things I've been reflecting on is kind of what we did last year and obviously I'm planning content for the next few months uh, across our site. One of the things I kind of identified was that the the tone of most material online and and particularly on courses as well, I think, is geared towards elite development and whereas the vast majority of coaching that probably does take place with, I guess, recreational or what we'd call grassroots players over here um, do you know roughly what proportion of the NSCAA membership operate at the kind of different levels of the pyramid? And as a up, um, what do you think are sort of the, the principal areas that coaches need to focus on within those different levels, kind of looking at rec and co and um, competitive and working your way up?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I can give you, um, some very, very educated estimates and I can give you a few, a few numbers. Um, Our membership uh, fluctuates in the mid-30s, mid-30,000s on on a regular basis. Um, And I think that is made up of a a portion of the professional coaching ranks in this country, certainly um, a larger percentage of the pros of college and slightly larger still of high school coaches. But by far and away, the biggest percentage of our 35,000 are youth coaches, and that would be working in community-based programs all the way up to relatively uh, elite travel clubs that may even indeed travel internationally. Um, But the, the market that is really difficult to identify in terms of pure numbers are coaches coming in at the grassroots level very often because of their child's involvement and the need of volunteers. Now, of course, we are getting more and more Young parents who are, have played themselves and probably been coached themselves—that wasn't the case maybe 15, 20 years ago. Um, but interestingly, we've just been doing some e-learning content, and we've targeted the grassroots coaches. And 85% of the 4,000 people that have interfaced with our online online learning e-learning content are first-time interfacing with the NSCAA, and so. Our current thrust with e-learning is very much targeted at the grassroots coaches because there are, we believe, tens of thousands of coaches in this country who may be reluctant to have their first coach education experience delivered in person uh, because of time, money, uh, certain convenience, but also the possibility of a little bit of intimidation. And so e-learning is their first way into the, into the coach education world. And then hopefully they
0: will they will be empowered and confident to go to in person delivery. Yeah, sure. Um, on on the recreational so side of things, then doing. Ian, uh, in terms of that e learning content and I guess kind of pitching pitching educational content at a beginner level, what what are some of the areas of focus? Um, what do you think kind of the priorities are for a new coach who's beginning their kind of journey? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a
1: great question. I, I would, if I may, just first say that I'm I'm trying to. Reshape the language. Um, The notion of competitive and rec carries a certain certainly in this country considers uh, carries a certain stigma. And if we think of football as recreational, uh, outside of the perhaps the professional leagues. So I I really think of it as grassroots. um, And then you're getting into increasing levels of of competitiveness. So I I tend to use the word grassroots.
0: Yeah, I can certainly Um, get behind that. Yeah.
1: So. We have come up with sort of a tagline of coaching education when you want it, where you want it, how you want it, potentially delivered through your tablet while you're on your way to work and you've got 20 minutes as a, a person with a, you know, a real job, as it were, as opposed to a soccer coach. Um, but you're going to be stuck on a field at come 6 o'clock at night with, with 15 screaming 13-year-olds, and you need to manage that environment. And so um, what you need is is survival skills to coaches to some extent and so one of the things that we did was we created six seven minute learning units um, and we drip fed them to our uh, grassroots coaches and so every monday morning for a period of 10 weeks they would receive between two and four of these six seven minute learning units Um, it would come to them on their tablets or their pcs they would see the activity the activity would be narrated the activity would be animated uh, or possibly videoed. we're going to video as well and then they could also print the, the lesson plan from that and so for the coach grassroots coach who doesn't have the time to give up a weekend or a week of their lives for formal in person delivery of coach education and what they really need is a 75 minute survival training session to some extent but with good content and some tips on how to make it more difficult or less difficult,
0: that's that's one of our approaches. Yeah, I think that, that probably resonates with our audience as well. Obviously, our focus with, with the coaching manual videos is not that you uh, copy exactly what you see on the video, but rather that takes the difficult bit of the logistics, the planning, the progressions um, off the plate so that you can dedicate more of your planning towards things like behaviour management and um, communication, etc. Is is that the similar kind of methodology in terms of the e-learning product? You want to get coaches to learn about the, the subtle areas of coaching rather than the practices, which are kind of the obvious thing that people look for online? Yeah,
1: again, I, I think that's a, a really important distinction and I think One of the things that we're thinking about is that our audience are going to learn and interface with the material in different ways and are going to want different things from it. Traditionally, we've always understood the grassroots coach as wanting, for want of a better expression, drills. And certainly in the way we're delivering it, we're giving them activities, you know, set up the grid, these are the numbers, this is where the balls go, this is how you put the colors on them, these are the coaching things you should bring out. We've also provided them with what we consider a competency matrix so they can at least relate the content to some expectations of competency on the part of the players. So if the players can't execute these techniques, don't do this activity. So we try to, we try to help them there. Um, but importantly, what we've done also, and of course we're able to narrate this in there so they can see the activity working, but they can also hear our interpretations. Um, and what we've said to them is, here is here are ways to make it. To, to change the to change the uh, activity in terms of complexity up or down, um, and then we've given them some tips, some practical tips on where to stand, how to present the information, how to make sure there's frequency, and so on and so forth. So, we've given them context in terms of competency matrix. We've given them the drill or the activity, which is what the majority of them have always wanted, and then we've given them some some the type of insight that a professional coach or an experienced coach would have in that environment uh, which wouldn't always come out explicitly, we've given them that as well and so if they're starting to push their level,
0: they can can take those ideas on board. I guess this would apply for the courses in person as well as the e-learning content but I just want to dig into, uh, do you have a framework that you operate to or, or in other words, how do you decide what goes into the educational content? Obviously there's such a potential complexity in coaching as a whole. How do you break it down into chunks and decide uh, kind of which ones to introduce and when?
1: Yeah, it, um, well, there, I would say there is core content in the American, uh, the US coaching philosophy right now. And so, um, actually, when I look at the English FA's um, future game, uh, there's a tremendous amount of similarity as there is in some of the stuff that that's the KNVB have been doing with their tips. So. Um, we have our four components. We think of uh, psychology and fitness, but certainly technique and tactics as our four pillars. Um, We talk a lot about the principles of play, and we expect them to be established, certainly by the time a coach is intermediate or advanced. We expect them to have that as rote learning. But certainly at the grassroots level, we will introduce the concepts of principles of play and the roles of players, but we don't necessarily expect the coaches to be able to use the jargon, and we certainly don't expect them to be delivering it per se um, and formally to the players. But it might be that we've got a grassroots coach and we say, look, you're going to play one versus one. There are some decisions for the five-year-old, six-year-old player on the ball. Can you help uh, draw out their understanding of what those decisions might be? And when they go to 2v2, there are clearly more decisions. It's more complex. Can you bring them out? Now, we would understand decisions to be tactics, We don't want that grassroots coach trying to understand tactics formally, but we want them to evaluate technical opportunities and decisions the players have. Um, But we're also very mindful of the fact that that we have a beyond diverse audience now, a a broadly diverse audience um, in terms of age, experience, um, ethnicity, cultural background. And so we're very cognizant of the fact that, that we might get a, an audience of 20, 30 coaches, and there has to be an underlying theme of context and application. The coach has to be able to put this information into their context, and I'm not, I'm not equipped to tell everybody what their context is, and then they have to know how to apply that information in their context. So we're going to give them some prescriptive material for sure but we're also going to give them some manipulative or some some material that is able to be manipulated for their context and their application.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. I I guess uh, in a way the the grassroots game is actually probably more difficult to accommodate than the um, maybe high school, particularly college because you do have that diversity.
1: Yeah, well if we're talking for a very simple example, we're talking about technique and we're talking, you know, set up frequency, create activities where there's a lot of frequency of the technique with immediate feedback and deliberate practice but then the coach turns around and says, well, we're in a low socioeconomic program and we only have four balls and they have 20 kids. So either we have to find a way for that coach in his context or her context to use four balls and have a very powerful meaningful shooting practice or we have to suggest to them, okay, here's other activities that may be better suited for a limited amount of equipment, and will save shooting for another day when you can access another 25 soccer balls. Um, and then, you know, but the the person in that class sitting next to them, that coach may have a, a socioeconomically advanced program, suburban, typically in our sense, and every child shows up with a ball and 150 pair, 150 pair of Adidas or or Nike or Under Armour shoes, <laughs> and so. We want them to understand that technique is based on frequency, good repetition, deliberate feedback, immediate immediate feedback, and deliberate practice.
0: But it's going to look different for those two coaches because of their environment. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, one of the other big issues that I've been digging into um, in terms of how we measure the effectiveness of, of our material, we obviously rely on feedback to some extent. That but that can be self-selecting. How does the NSCAA approach it? I mean, do you have Specific metrics whereby you'd measure success, or um, maybe there's some overlap with U.S. soccer there as well. But how do you how do you know that the program that you're hoping to deliver is uh, having the required impact?
1: Well, um, this would be uh, we don't we don't have a formal structure. We certainly we collect evaluations, which to some extent can be anecdotal. We can produce statistics to say that the satisfaction with the product is XYZ. I can do that. Sure. Um, but typically after people come away from a program, they're quite buoyed and quite enthusiastic. And I would say that some of that feedback is actually slanted a little bit too heavily towards the positive. Um, but this is, the, this is what I think would apply in any programming um, of this nature, be it in the UK, be it here. Um, I'm, I'm interested in retention of players. And so, for example, if a club – in the UK in the US wherever has enough opportunity to evaluate how many players were in the program at U six and then were still in the program at U ten. So you you need a you need a period of time. And can you retain those numbers? Now you obviously you because it's not enough to say, well we've gone from four hundred to six hundred that that could be a reflection of just positive recruitment. Um potentially based on good behaviors, but just on aggressive recruitment. It could be a reflection of a growing population based based on some other industry coming into the community. What I'm interested in is how many of our under sixes can we still have in our program four years later based on programming that we provide, and a large part of that programming will have to be the educational piece. Because as the children are able to select critically what, where they give their time and place as opposed to the parents selecting it for them, they're going to want to see some intrinsic value in the experience, um, assuming that we've you know, we run out on all of the bribes for the extrinsic experience. <laughs> so I think the coach who is doing a good job in the environment is demonstrating the appropriate social skills but creating um, intelligent, progressive, graduated content is the one who can say, you know, my players have tended to come back to this club and have remained branded to this club by virtue of the programming. And again, I believe the key part of any programming is the quality of the coaching. That's the number one
0: thing. Yeah, I like that a lot. That really resonates. And it gives something that's very um, measurable and actionable to coaches um, who realistically, if the metric is number of players going on to um, you know, college teams or in the UK to academy teams, I think that's that are oftentimes out of your control and it can seem like even if you improve your standard, it's not going to have a, a measurable impact on that as a metric. So I like uh, having something else which is much more personal and also more relevant to a, a much greater proportion of the players that you interact with as well. And that really resonates. Yeah. Just in terms well, of... I
1: definitely. No. Oh, just, to, just to finish on that point, I mean, I, certainly to your to audience listening, um, the number you have at U6 is not likely to be the same you have at U10 because there are legitimate um, interests and, and and diversions and distractions for the kids. But the key, I think, is to to have a superior retention rate than competitors in the market to compete in clubs because your product is based on solid education, good coach prep so on and so forth. Um, the other thing I would, would suggest to the audience is if you're a grassroots club and you lose a couple of your kids to higher programming in another club, it's much more informed to celebrate that fact and take credit for the development that you did than to be really disappointed that you, some of your top talent has left. If you're not a club which is designed to provide for top talent but is, is, is committed to trying to develop top talent, When your players move on, it's a cause for celebration,
0: not for disappointment. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I I was actually going to dig into um, a very similar point to the one you made, which is that in the US, perhaps more so than in the UK, there's uh, great competition from other activities and particularly other sports, particularly as you get into the kind of high school uh, age. What do you think would need to happen in the US to uh, enable soccer to retain more of those players who are currently going off and and participating in other sports uh, as their main focus?
1: Um, Well, we're very blessed, up to the positive, with unbelievable media coverage of the game in this country relative to where we were 10 years ago, and certainly when I came to this country back in 1987. Um, So that is to say that without very much difficulty, any young boy, young girl in this country can sit with their parent um, in the comfort of their own living room. For example, you can watch every single EPL game, uh, or BPL game, live uh, on a, of course, on a Saturday, Sunday, Monday now, um, without any problem in terms of cable, you can watch the MLS, the NWSL, which are the women's professional game, and our college games are on television. So, And then, of course, with Twitter, Facebook, and all the various media, and, and FIFA, uh, FIFA 15, the video game, brilliant. So the kids are really, really able to interface with the game in the social media or media setting far more frequently than they've ever been able to do. And so um, you see it now when we go to camps, instead of kids at a soccer camp having a Michael Jordan shirt on or um, or maybe even a football jersey, which used to have an American football jersey, now they've all got Messi, Ronaldo, Dempsey, Bradley. um, They've got that. The next part, which is critical, I think, is is the expansion of MLS, the expansion of NWSL, um, and clubs also making a conscious effort to take their membership to the local high school game or to the local college game. I think that one of our biggest challenges here is getting our kids exposed to watching the game live and, and having that experience, which of course would be more, um, more uh, applicable and more available to a child in a, in a smaller a geographically smaller European country and with, certainly with bigger actual leagues. But that is the next part for us. Um, and whilst we can't expect everything to go professional tomorrow, so every kid's got a, a professional club within driving distance, the clubs and the parents, uh, the coaches can do a better job of getting their kids to watch, as they say, uh, older
0: youth soccer, high school soccer, college soccer, and certainly professional soccer live. Yeah, I like that. I mean, as you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the U.S. and, and lived there for just over a year, um, sort of 2013, 2014, and. One of the things that I was impressed by the most during that kind of exploration of the game was that it does seem like there's a hierarchy that enables change to happen a little bit more quickly than it does in the UK in terms of the director of coaching structure, Um, whereas in the UK oftentimes it's a very passionate coach at the bottom level trying to almost have like a trickle-up effect. It does seem like change can be implemented um, when it's the right person in role. I'm sure there's pros and cons to having that kind of structure, but just talk about how that structure works and um, some of the kind of benefits and maybe problems that that gives within a, within a club in the U.S.
1: Sure. Well, I, um, this, is not, uh, this is not name-dropping, but for the benefit of your audience, I, I just had two presentations I was able to make in, in Geneva to an international European audience and, and one again in Naples. And obviously there's a great deal of interest in, in what we're doing, because we're obviously America is a potential market for, for European clubs and, and entities. But this is what I think perhaps maybe some of your audience can't quite appreciate. It is, it is very possible to make a very, very powerful full-time career as a grassroots coach um, and probably more of a director of coaching. So um, I was recently working with a colleague from the English FA on a coaching school here in America, he was talking to me a little bit about the compensation for academy coaches in professional clubs in the UK, and um, respectfully, a lot of that compensation wouldn't come close to what a young coach running or managing a club can do in this country. Um, that will probably get me a whole bunch of emails, uh, but there you go. Um, but, the, but the point is that that a community. So where where a lot of the industry of coaching soccer coaching where a person can become a full-time professional is actually at the grassroots level there is way more opportunities to make a living as a potentially a college coach or a high school coach and certainly as a youth club coach than there is uh, in other countries because our culture is based very much on the child's participation and the parents are willing to to pay for that participation um so typically a person in that role their, their bosses, to some extent, their consumers are the parents, so they have to be very mindful of customer service to the parents. They will probably be overseen by a volunteer board because a grassroots coach will probably be a nonprofit organization. So the the management of that director of coaching will not come from the technical part. It will come from a volunteer board of parents who are probably professional in other walks of life, you know, lawyers, doctors, um, business people, um Blue-collar workers. These people will be the parents of the club but board members, and that is the environment
0: of a director of coaching in this club, uh, in this country. That makes sense. Um, so, if a coach in the UK wanted to uh, maybe go over there and coach, or perhaps even implement a DOC position at their own club, um, how would you sort of describe what the role is on a day-to-day basis? What are the key responsibilities?
1: Well, if I may, to just stem the potential flow of emails, <laughs> the challenge, the challenge. Um, I am inundated with people with USA licenses, pro licenses, playing backgrounds. The challenge increasingly for for translation to this country is the visa. And so for a young person to come from Europe to America to make a living in the game, finding a sponsor for the visa or finding the initial foothold into this American coaching career pathway is based on the visa. It's not based on the depth of the resume so that is something that people need to consider um but the role of the director of coaching um, as it's understood in this country and, and potentially as as and when it becomes more of a career path at the grassroots level in, in the uk uh, one of the challenges is a lot of your day you're not able to, to physically access your players because if your players are in school because they're not full-time pros um you know from from seven thirty in the morning until probably three thirty when school gets out what are you doing? And that is the time when you probably need to take a lot of time off for yourself, but also be preparing and organising your programming, managing your calendar, communicating with your membership. Your actual work very often will occur from that three thirty, four o'clock, to um, uh, three thirty, four o'clock to maybe eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, where you've got your twenty, thirty teams working, perhaps on different locations. And you've got to try to get out and see how your coaches are interacting with those teams. So you're not going to see everybody all the time. Big questions. Do you coach a team within your club or do you strictly direct? Um, Where do you place your emphasis? Do you focus on the elite part of your programming or are you more concerned about the grassroots? Um, How do you institute a coach education program for your players, uh, for your coaches, excuse me? How do you uh, communicate with your parent base? Because, again, they are the consumer to some extent. So the role of a director of coaching um, is very often, at least in our culture, not not always exclusively technical. And sometimes it's actually less technical than it is administrative, business management, um, communication. You are almost essentially the CEO of a small business.
0: But that makes perfect sense. Just to um, comment on the issue about communicating with parents, that's an issue that comes up whether you're a grassroots coach in the UK, in the US or, or kind of probably the majority of levels that you're working at uh, throughout the game until maybe the elite level. So do you have any specific advice for how you go about that? Do you use um, kind of stapled, um, sample documents for example? Um, do you use technology to do that or is it is it mostly about face-to-face communication?
1: Um. Uh, just a, a little plug for some colleagues of mine. Um, the, uh, I, I worked at the University of Notre Dame um, in, uh, in Indiana and with the Minnesota Youth Soccer Association, and we created a formal coach education program delivered in person. And the idea was that clubs that em- embraced it, um, at least one of the, the parents or guardians within the, within each, for each player had to attend this, this training program on how to be essentially a supportive soccer parent and to be part of the team with roles and responsibilities similar to the coach but different and distinct and have that sort of um, shared. There are some simple thumbnails I'll just give you that we talk to coaches about is being very clear on what the communication protocols are. So very often we'll suggest to the coaches, um, you ask the parents not to engage in a discussion about the game until 24 hours after the game. So they may come up and ask questions about something else relating to the child's well-being or whatever, but game issues come afterwards. When is communication um, When is communication done? Uh, is it done by email, so on and so forth? Uh, I'll give you just a simple example um, in terms of why pre-season-type meetings that we think are valuable Co-parents, um, as the consumer, may have a desire to see a tremendous amount of um, competitive success. They also may wish to see everybody play equally because they're all paying, paying equally. Those two things are not necessarily incompatible, but they could well be. Um, if you want me to win every game, but you also want me to even out the playing time. So those type of discussions, they don't have to be you know very in-depth, but getting a few Um, agreements with the parents is something that we're we're very big with. We also um, seek to educate the parents on the technical technical and tactical nuances of the game. And so if you're working with grassroots players, you'd really like to see them try to play out the back. Um, There is the potential you're going to get the ball stolen and and it's going to be a short route to go for the opposition. So whether whether the league, the club can impose a restraining rule line, but these types of things, um, because unfortunately our parents can be very informed, uninformed, and you've got uninformed people passionately involved watching their DNA run around the field, and it can be very challenging for for an amateur coach, unpaid coach, volunteer coach, and certainly for a for a for a
0: compensated coach too. Yeah, no, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and just. Um, finally on the kind of DOC because I do, I do want to spend just a few minutes talking about uh, a national level and a broader picture but before we do that just to pin down the DOC role a little bit what are some of the most common um, I guess pitfalls or maybe even mistakes that you see uh, DOCs making at clubs um, I guess you kind of get to interact with a, a broad variety of skill level in that role as well yeah. um, and yeah. do you have any advice for t- DOCs when you see those common mistakes?
1: your audience, and, and this is where I think everybody has to be very self-aware, um, you, you, if you're the DOC, there is a chance, a, a more than a strong chance, that you have a, an expert knowledge and a technical knowledge. But you will, be, you will be second-guessed. You'll be second-guessed by your volunteer board, who perhaps have no technical knowledge, and your parents who may have no technical knowledge. And even if they do, their opinions are very slanted by virtue of the fact that it's their DNA running around on the field. And you may not be comfortable with that. You may not be comfortable with the fact that you've trained, you've worked hard, you're an expert, and you wouldn't go into the workplace of your board members or your parents and second guess how they're performing oral surgery or attaching the, the, the lug nuts to a, a vehicle. But they'll do that to you. That goes with the territory. Being second-guessed, being challenged by people sometimes who are not qualified to challenge you goes with the territory. If you're not prepared to accept that and you're not prepared to maybe even nip it in the bud, by being really forthcoming with your communication, with your information, you're going to have a really difficult time being a, a club DOC. And I think if you look at... If you look at, if you want to extrapolate out to uh, an example in the professional rooms, you see how managers interact with the media. So you see some of the asinine questions that get asked of top league managers in these environments, and how they're looking to to draw the coach out into some sort of controversy. And you see how the best ones manipulate and manage that. That skill set. That's where I would recommend to a DOC. You know, read man management books. Read. the successful coaches who deal with that. I I think of people like Tony Mowbray, who I always thought was excellent at giving a very honest assessment of what he had seen during the games when people were trying to goad him because he was fairly comfortable in himself. But that, for me, is the number one challenge for a DOC, is, is being prepared to be challenged by people who are not, frankly,
0: qualified to challenge you but certainly are empowered to. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense um it also leads in nicely to the the uh, question i had um prepared just about communication uh, i guess more about interrelationships just talk about how you kind of manage um up and down i guess so for example as a obviously now you you're in a national position but as a state uh, director of coaching when you're in minnesota how do you work with the kind of club and county people who are uh, normally underneath you and how do you interrelate with the sort of uh, national association, which operates above?
1: Yeah, It's um, <clears throat> a, a timely question. In terms of U.S. soccer, um, currently the technical director of U.S. Soccer is Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, I think the success of the German men's national team in the World Cup and the sort of the program around two thousand that was instituted to get the German national team, to, the men's national team, to where it is now and Jürgen being part of that, is informing some of the direction of our Federation's coaching education program. And to that extent, um, in the Federation it's quite uh, a prescriptive, quite a very, it's a very clear pathway. It's um, definitely a licensing pathway um, based on assessment and the, um, ultimately a ceiling for where people can progress within the coach education pathway. Um, there's lots of coach education provided, but to get to the A license is increasingly a more um, challenging and appropriately challenging way. That's where our federation is pushing out. Um, our federation, to some extent, um, appreciates that what the NSCA does well is actually does quite well with, with um, membership engagement, certainly membership engagement. And I think it, we would get credit for doing a very good job with grassroots coaching, and when, when called upon, um, higher levels of senior, more advanced coaching. So that's the federation. In terms of the organizations that I work with, like state associations, league organizations, individual clubs, and partners like, for example, Challenger Sports, which is a very large camp entity that, that um, brings coaches from Europe to conduct camps through the summer, and um, those relationships are very two-way. We are not in a position, nor do we choose to, to mandate to them, to police them, to tell them how it will be. Our, our methodology, and certainly in, in my department within this organization, Coach Education, is very much collaboration. And again, to the, to the extending that notion of context and application, my relationship with Oregon Youth Soccer Association is different by virtue of their population, their needs, and their climate than it would be for, let's say, Idaho or certainly Massachusetts, where my colleague Ian Mulliner is working with the coaching manual on a, on a lot of initiatives. Um, and that's because, again, you know, our country is – this country is six time zones big, if you count Hawaii. So we're, we're trying to manage in a continent. And I think it's the role of our U.S. Soccer Federation or U.S. Soccer to – to be the um, the very formal um, regulatory body, if you will, and the role that we take within that organization is to be uh, reflexive to the needs of individual members and collectives that um, have different challenges based on geography, climate, money, numbers,
0: etc. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I know also you work with um, US Youth Soccer and, and specifically Sam Snow in, in many um, in many different ways and arenas. Just how does that interrelationship work between U.S. soccer, U.S. youth soccer, and the state federations? What's the interrelationship between those guys?
1: Yeah, good question again. um, And this was very difficult for the European audience I had, uh, again, in Geneva and Naples, to to completely understand. Um, Because typically, um, in in a European nation, you have the federation, you have professional clubs, and then you have the amateur ranks. And you can kind of see... The um, the way it flows. We're a we're a country of opportunity, and so there are more acronyms connected to soccer in this country than uh, most Europeans could even get their heads around. So, U.S. soccer, or the U.S. Soccer Federation, certainly manages the national team programs. They manage a very robust coach education program, um, and one of the things they do is they've created an academy system, where there I think is currently 77 clubs have essentially a seal of approval and operate in competition under U.S. soccer's banner. That is a very crude uh, thumbnail of what the federation does. Mm -hmm. Um, Underneath that, amongst other things, including the NSCAA, are a host of youth bodies um, that provide different levels of services, uh, AYSO, U.S. club, say, and then you have YMCA's and park and recs and things like that. And sometimes those youth organizations are actually competing for facilities, um, players, uh, registrations, so on and so forth. And it, it, sometimes it can be quite hostile. The majority of times it's quite uh, pleasant, gentlemanly, if you will. Um, <laughs> but they are in competition with each other for hearts and minds. The biggest of those youth organizations is U.S. Youth Soccer, which has about 30, about, sorry, about 3, 3 million, 3.2 million registered youth players. And the way they choose to manage their 3.2 million players is to divide them into state associations. So if you're a tiny club in Boise, Idaho, you may be a member of Idaho Youth Soccer. There may be 100 clubs which are members of Idaho Youth Soccer. And then Idaho Youth Soccer is a member of U.S. Youth Soccer. And U.S. Youth Soccer is one of several members of U.S. Soccer. So that's sort of the... The structure of it and then where we fit in as as the NSCAA is very often we collaborate with USU soccer partners in the delivery of
0: coach education and member services yeah that makes perfect sense so you touched on the I mean you mentioned gentlemen in conduct and you touched on the the um, interrelationship between lots of different organizations there so if I was going to just make you um, the dictator I guess like you could um, run US soccer like a dictatorship and you could immediately implement anything you wanted to do across the board what do you think you would do in your first year on that job
1: well i think the to some extent it's uh... it's follow the money and i, I can't i wish i could sort of uh... uh... be kinder about that but the 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 idea is that um, my understanding my my crude understanding of what the dfb has done in germany to, to a large extent is if you participate in the um, program that the Federation has established for grassroots all the way up to the professional ranks, you are rewarded from the DFB financially, and you have access to the to the programming. And so not only are you incentivized to be a part of the overall structure because you want to commit to the long-term growth of the game in your country, you're actually incentivized in a very... Um, uh, very extrinsic way as well. In the case of our federation, um, because historically our federation has allowed so many affiliate members, the challenge now is to be able to go in and police their best practices. Um, And that that can be very, very challenging with a country our size. So I think what I would do um, is I would look at um, employing technical directors and that would probably include referee community and so on and so forth, that were able to go and make sure that my partners in the delivery of the game were um, on the same page. And so the challenge, though, of course, is if, if Belgium is 300 kilometers long, um, that, can, that can be easily done in a country like Belgium or Holland or Germany. It's much, much more difficult to do in a country like America. And so consistency and conformity is very difficult to insist upon, it's very difficult to manage, and I'm not completely convinced that it is as appropriate in our nation as it might be in other nations by virtue, to some extent, of our diversity in so many other ways.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And obviously you touched earlier on the fact that you could embrace that and and it can be a strength as well. I think we should respond to that um, when we certainly chatted last year and, and that continues to be the case. Is there anything... Um, technical or or tactical that you think um, needs to be addressed first and foremost in the US for it to compete in terms of the men's national team and at the higher level? Okay. Well, if my colleagues from US soccer are listening,
1: um, I I hope I do an okay job with this. Um, (laughs) To the the point of why we may be slightly different in this country to other nations, and I'll, I'll go we'll go straight to the top of our national team programming. Um, We have the potential because we're in CONCACAF and because of our population to maybe take a thrust towards more of a um, Latin American style of play. Um, But if you're in the middle of the country uh, where the weather is such and you're in in communities, certainly there's Hispanic, but there's definitely other influences. And, of course, with with Coach Klinsmann, Um, We've looked at Germany for some American eligible players, and we had a a player from Nick Diskarud from Norway, and then we had Ari Johansson from Iceland in our national team programming. So it's quite challenging. I mean, our World Cup squad was made up the biggest percentage of people in our World Cup squad were actually people who had played in American college for at least two years. That was the biggest percentage group, not professionals from Europe, not people who had skipped um, college and gone straight into the pros in this country. That's where they came from. So that is still remarkably encouraging that our very unique system is still producing players for our national team. And it is an expectation in this country that the men's team gets to the second round. So it's actually at the end of the World Cup, people were disappointed we only got to the second round. I'm assuming that's the same in Italy, Spain, and England – but that's America feeling like that, and again, we don't have a fully developed professional league yet It's still a developing league mm-hmm. so I think america is uh, the u s is in wonderful shape in those in those regards, and if anything, the reason that we internally are a bit down on ourselves is because it's very much in the American nature to to be aggressive and seek achievement fairly quickly. but I would say. You know, since 1990, the U.S. national team, albeit out of CONCACAF on the men's side, has qualified for every World Cup, and as I said to you, the second round is, is an expectation, it's not a wishful thinking, um, it's an expectation. So there, there are some things there about about what we're doing in this country that I think other nations could probably look at and, and learn from.
0: No, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, Ian, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time out, um, especially so close to the convention, and... Um, again, I'll, I'll make sure that we get all the sh- different show notes, we'll have the links and etc. to the e learning that you mentioned. But uh, mainly, just thanks for taking the time and offering your insight. As ever, it's always very interesting to chat with you.
1: Well, I, I, I thanks, Pat, for the time. And you and I, and Chris, uh, your colleague Chris Barton, um, always do well with this stuff. Obviously, I will say this I was thinking about this this morning, um, perhaps. Uh, where previously Manchester United and the success of the Nevilles and Beckham and Giggs and all that, right now Southampton is probably the um, the flavor of the month here in terms of player development and academy stuff. So your relationship with the coaching manual, uh, with your colleagues at Southampton is a powerful one. And certainly the game is, is clearly because of media and things so global now, so it would be foolish of any of us to think that we found the answer. And so to your listeners, your organization and mine, I think those of us that are, that are very humble in regards to we kind of know what we're good at, but we're always looking to improve. That's by far the best way to go
0: forward. Oh, I agree. And I'm about to run off and uh, coach my own session, which is um, borrowed from Mr. Terry Moore at Southampton. It's a creating chances one. So I'll have to uh, leave it there. But I, I very much do look forward to catching up with you uh, next week.
1: Yeah, and if people want me uh, in any other way, the email's online, you can find it, but my Twitter feed is at Barker SCAA, and uh, I'm always trying to pick up followers, so it's at Barker <laughs> We'll
0: do our best to help out. Cheers, Ian. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Pal. Bye-bye.